our study on Israel here tonight. We have spoken a, a bit about Israel's past in uh, prior Wednesday evening gatherings. Particularly, we spoke about the Abrahamic covenant. And then, uh, Lord willing, in subsequent meetings, uh, we'll talk about Israel's future. Uh, but tonight, I want to uh, talk a little bit uh, about the present. And so we're going to speak tonight about the Middle East today. And uh, I want to show you some slides both tonight and on subsequent uh, Wednesday nights pertaining to the topic that I think might be helpful to you. Why even speak of the Middle East? Well, you can hardly avoid thinking about it, as you know. It's in the news almost every day, and uh, the Middle East is frequently uh, uh, given play all throughout the Scriptures. Uh, you probably know that the three uh, great monotheistic religions of the world all had their origin in the Middle East. Uh, Judaism being the first monotheistic uh, religion. Uh, and, and we recite this in a very ancient Hebrew prayer called the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that was new in that day. You see, all of Israel's neighbors were polytheistic. So Judaism was the world's first monotheistic religion, and then, of course, Christianity and Islam, and all had their origins in this place, this geographic area, which we referred to as the Middle East. Now, before I go further, let me make sure we're all on the same sheet with reference to what the Middle East is. It's a collection of countries in a particular geographic area, and I want you to know what I mean when I refer to the Middle East, so I just want to give you a list of those countries in alphabetical order. These are the countries that comprise the Middle East. Um, Bahrain, Egypt, uh, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, the Palestinian territories, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. Those are the countries of the Middle East, which begs this question. If those are all the countries of the Middle East, what justification do I have uh, to focus on just one of those countries, namely Israel. Why am I asking for your time over these weeks and several to come to focus our thinking on only one of these Middle Eastern countries, uh, the nation of Israel? Uh, the answer is simple. I'm asking you to focus on it because God does in the Scripture and down to this very day. I want to share with you a verse of Scripture, and I'll ask you to look it up. And as you do, I want to give you a little background. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Deuteronomy 32, 8. And if you don't have a Bible, if you just extend your hand a little bit in front of you, you'll find one there. 
Please help yourself to it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. If you're new to the Bible, it's not difficult to find. Start at the beginning and just go to the right a little bit, and you're going to run into Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses is the author of it. Here's the background as you search for it. Um, Moses is making a stark contrast between the rebelliousness of Israel and the goodness of Israel's God. That's the context. And so this is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man. Now, folks, uh, let me stop right there and just tell you that is a reference, perhaps you know, to what is popularly referred to as the table of the nations, which is found in Genesis chapter 10. In the table of the nations, we see God allotting land geography with boundaries to various people groups to make up the population of the world. Genesis 10, table of the nations. Deuteronomy 32, 8, I believe, is a reference to how God allocated and allotted certain specific and bounded land areas to the various people groups that make up the world's population. So that's what he's speaking about here. And then goes on, uh, part B of Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When God did this, he set the boundaries of the peoples. Now get this. According to the number of the sons of Israel. The standard God himself used in allocating land territory to the nations of the world was a function of God first accommodating the sons of Israel. He took into account this people group. He separated them from all others. And before he allocated nations their land allotment, he did so, am I misreading this? According to the number, according to the population of those who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I didn't say God isn't gracious to the other nations of the world, but I am saying to you, he chose Israel to focus his attention, and Israel was to be the vehicle through which God would bless the other nations of the world. But he didn't give the other nations of the world, and particularly the Middle East, the same status he gave Israel when he allocated land to modern-day Jordan and Turkey and Iran and Iraq and even the European nations and South American nations and uh, uh, countries of the uh, Mediterranean world and all the rest. When he did this, he did it according to the number of the sons of Israel. And please note, this is before Israel was even a duly constituted nation. That didn't happen until she received the law 
uh, from Moses on Mount Sinai. That was her constitution. Those laws and statutes constituted Israel as a nation on her way into the promised land. So if someone says, Stuart, you're not giving equal time, take it up with God. When he allocated the world's territory, the geography, when he divided it amongst the nations, am I misreading this? He did so. He set the boundaries of the peoples. Look what it says. According to the number of the sons of Israel. Please don't accuse me of focusing on Israel because I'm Jewish. Please don't reduce it to that kind of uh, egocentric thing. I'm teaching the Bible. Look what the God of the Bible said through Moses. He said, when I divided up the nations and I gave it to people groups that they could be blessed therein, when I did so, I took into account first and foremost the number of the sons of Israel. Now, if I am misreading that, please tell me. But I think I'm not. That's what it says. So I'm not focusing on Iran or on Iraq or on Turkey or on Jordan. I'm focusing on Israel because God does right from the outset. Furthermore, a focus on this country in the Middle East, Israel, makes sense uh, to believers here and all over for this reason. It was in this country, Israel, that Jesus was born. It was in this country, Israel, that he grew, that he performed his ministry of teaching and healing. It was in this country, Israel, that he was tried, falsely accused, crucified. It was in this country that he was buried, and it was in this country that he was seen to be alive from death. It was in this country that he was raised up from earth, that he ascended on his return to his heavenly abode. And it is in this country and this country alone to which the Lord Jesus will return so as to rule and reign from this country. So if you accuse me of focusing on Israel because I'm Jewish, you make a big mistake. I focus on Israel because I want to be um, in cahoots with God. And this is what God is doing. For whatever reason, folks, it isn't New Jersey to which the Lord Jesus was birthed and crucified and all the rest. It's this, and it's not just this country to be more specific. Uh, the focus of God in the Bible is not just on Israel. It's on Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, we refer to it in particular. So let me refer to you uh, another verse, Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. Ezekiel 5, 5. Now, this one is harder to find. Here, you're on your own. I usually resort to the table of contents uh, for this one. So, uh, good luck. Ezekiel, a prophet. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her 
at the center of the nations with lands around her. You see it? If I'm centering on Israel, and in particular, if I'm centering on Jerusalem, I think you should too, because God does. That's what it says right there. This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations. So speaking of Jerusalem, uh, there is a familiar sight in it, with which I bet a number of you are familiar, and it is the Wailing Wall, and, and there it is. It's only referred to as the Wailing Wall, you know, by us. Um, to Israelis, they wouldn't refer to it as the Wailing Wall. They refer to it as the Western Wall. It's all that remains, that wall, is all that remains. Not of the temple. It's gone. The temple built by Solomon and renovated, enlarged, rebuilt by Herod. It's all gone. All that remains is this. This is the perimeter wall of the raised platform that received the construction of the temple when it existed. This is it. This is the western wall. And my people, Jewish people, consider it to be one of the holiest sites in Judaism. And so they go there from all over the world. And when we go to Israel, anyone could go to it. You don't have to be Jewish. Anyone could go to the Western Wall and pray. And I do. Uh, I pray for the people around me that the Lord would uh, grant them eyes to see and ears to hear uh, who their Messiah is. I remember once I was there at the Wailing Wall, and there was a very orthodox person dressed like one of these, and his cell phone went off. <laughs> and there he was uh, answering the call at the Wailing Wall, and I, I was just wondering if it was God who had his number. Or, I mean, <laughs> anyway, um, so it's called the Wailing Wall by us and many because Jewish people go there and they weep. You, you, you would see that even today. Jews go there and they, they wail and and, and they weep over the destruction of the temple. This is all that there is. And so they weep about glory, which once was, but no longer is here in the land. But as sad as that is, it's a very, very hopeful experience. If you think about this, do you notice where they are weeping? They are weeping at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, in the modern state of Israel after centuries of dispersion from this land. They're back in their homeland, and it is a modern-day miracle. Just as God promised, here they are, able uh, for the first time in 2,500 years to weep at the Western Wall. So though it's sad, it's also glorious to me at the same time. You see, that they're in the land proves God is not finished with the Jews yet, proves he has not forsaken his promises to them, though they have forsaken him, proves that he has not replaced them with anybody else. 
Martin Luther was an amazing man. Wow. Translated the Bible from German to the, or or from uh, original languages to German, the vernacular of the people. Was a, a very prolific hymn writer. Perhaps, I don't know if you knew that about Martin Luther. Wonderful, a mighty fortress is our God, penned by Martin Luther. Uh, 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 an instigator of the Protestant Reformation to which, whether you know it or not, we all owe a debt. Uh, A reformation from religiosity and man-made laws and a liturgy which distracts and confuses us uh, from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. So Martin Luther is to be credited with all this, but, you know, the best of men is a man at best. And he became virulently anti-Semitic towards the end of his life. He wrote hateful tractates against the Jews. He was very confused, it seemed to me, about God's place for the Jews in the world in which he lived. And so he made this statement once. This is a quote from Martin Luther. If, he said, if the Jews are Abraham's descendants then we would expect to see them back in their own land. We would expect them to have a state of their own. But what do we see? We see them living scattered and despised. Based on his observation, Luther concluded that God had indeed rejected the Jewish people and no longer was in a covenant relationship with them But with all due respect to such a great man, he was dead wrong. Dead wrong. They are back in the land. As of May 14, 1948, the Jewish state of Israel was reestablished. And after centuries of dispersion, the Jews do have what God promised them as part and parcel of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. They have their homeland. Luther and so many like him and so many in our day are mistaken. God has not forsaken the Jewish people. He has not, not because they don't deserve to be, but because his promises to her are a function of his reliability and faithfulness and not Israel, who have received the benefits thereof. Now, I want you to take a look at this next, uh, next slide. This photo is of a man standing. His name is David Ben-Gurion. He's speaking to an assemblage of people in Tel Aviv. That's where this is taking place. It's in Tel Aviv. And David Ben-Gurion stood up to address those gathered there. He stood under, you see that photo on the wall? It's a photo of a man named Theodore Herzl, a Jew from then Austria-Hungary. Hungary, he's from Budapest. And Theodore Herzl was a journalist Uh, but also moved to begin a movement known as Zionism, Zion being one of the epithets used with regard to uh, Jerusalem, to, to Israel, Zion, Mount Zion. So he started the movement called Zionism, 
whose purpose it was to find a way to reestablish the ancient homeland for the Jewish people. What was it that motivated Theodore Herzl to start the movement? Well, it was an outbreak of anti-Semitism. It's very interesting how God can use all things, even anti-Semitism, and even the persecution of Jews for good. So here's what happened. Herzl observed growing anti-Semitism in the 1890s in France. Uh, there was an incident that stirred him up, many think, to begin the Zionist movement. It took place in France in 1894. It was called the Dreyfus Affair. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It involved a Jewish military officer. He was a captain at the time. His name was Alfred Dreyfus. He was falsely accused and then convicted, nonetheless, of spying for Germany. Though he was later fully vindicated, the whole incident grew out of growing hatred of the Jews in France, as I mentioned in the 1890s. Herzl watched and observed all this. He witnessed through the streets of Paris and other French cities mass rallies uh, during the Dreyfus trial where many uh, chanted, death to the Jews, death to the Jews. And out of this, Herzl came to a conclusion. It was this. They will not stop hating us. The nations of the world hate us. Historically, it won't go away. We don't know why, but they want to obliterate us. We are the most persecuted people on earth, and we can't put it to an end. Therefore, Herzl said, our only hope of survival is to be in our own homeland. So it was the persecution of the Jews, particularly during the Dreyfus Affair in France, that I think God used to raise up Theodore Herzl and the Zionist movement. Well, Herzl never lived to see his dream come to fruition. He died in 1904 in Austria. But what he dreamt of did in fact happen, and it was announced right here right here at this meeting, which you see on the screen. It was in 1948. Specifically, it was May 14th, 1948. More specifically, it was at 4 p.m. We Jews know this because this is important. Christians ought to know this because it's a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and it proves the reliability of God's word. May 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, himself a Jew in the diaspora from Poland, a Polish Jew, stood up and made this announcement to the people assembled there. He said, the state of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, heir to ancient Judea, Hebron, and Samaria has been born. Well, he went on, and a recording of his remarks was made. It was in a day when technology wasn't so good, and remember, it was in 1948. 
but there is an actual recording of David Ben-Gurion's remarks. We have it uh, down to this very day, and I want you to listen just for a little bit uh, of it. The land of Israel, Ben-Gurion said, was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, he said, their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. After being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it of their political freedom. Exciting, yet sad. Only political freedom. Ben-Gurion's people, my people, down to this very day, if they have political freedom, they surely lack spiritual freedom, which is much more precious. But God nonetheless allowed them to be ingathered from the four corners of the earth back into their land on May 14, 1948. And though they came in unbelief, still they came because the Abrahamic covenant, remember, is unconditional. It's not conditioned on anything Israel does or does not do. It's a function of the reliable, faithful, gracious, merciful character of Almighty God. And so is the new covenant under which you are part of the covenant as well. So they were regathered into the land. And David Ben-Gurion became the first prime minister of the modern state of Israel. And after thousands of years, the Jewish people were back in their land. 758,700 mostly exiled Jews, along with David Ben-Gurion, became the first citizens of the modern state of Israel. And when they did, they together on this day recited an ancient traditional Hebrew blessing. It's over 2,000 years old. I know some of you want to get back to the traditions. Good. Let's really get back. Here's one 2,000 years old. It's a prayer we call the Shehechianu. We utter it whenever a new thing happens. When God has done a new thing, a marvelous thing, an unanticipated thing, an undeserved thing, 
we recite the Shehechianu. And David Ben-Gurion called upon a rabbi present at this meeting to do so. And here's what it sounds like. Baruch ato Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, Shehechianu v'kiyamanu v'higiyanu, lazman hazeh. Blessed be the Lord our God, King of the universe, who preserved our lives and granted us the joy to reach this great season. Amen. After 2,500 years, after its people had been scattered all over the world, after pogroms and gas chambers and concentration camps, in one day, the Jews were back in their homeland. Can you explain that to me? Except God kept his word. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever heard of a country reborn? After its people had been scattered worldwide for centuries. Who ever heard of a country reborn in a single day? And yet this is exactly what God said would happen. Let me quote to you Isaiah chapter 66 verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 66, 8 and 9. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? And so in fulfillment of Isaiah's words, on May 14, 1948, God demonstrated his capacity not only to birth but to deliver the state of Israel. And in a relatively short time, I'm sure you will agree, what has happened in this tiny little nation is nothing short of amazing and overwhelming. Israel, in the time of her short existence since 1948, has thrived and prospered. Take a look here just to give you an idea. In the bottom uh, corner is a picture of the Israeli Knesset or parliament. It is the only true democracy in the Middle East. People began to vote for representatives to the Knesset in 1949. It is a representative government, the only one in the Middle East. The standard of living in Israel is very, very high. When people go to Israel with us, they think they're maybe going to have to rough it. You, you, when you go to South Texas, you rough it. <laughs> Let me tell you. But when you go to Israel, you don't rough it. It's very modern and the lifestyle is very advanced. It is technologically and agriculturally advanced. Israeli scientists have to perfect agriculture because it's a dry and arid and barren place prior to all matter, manner of modern irrigation and planting methodologies. Even today, Israel exports much of her food to other nations of the world, primarily Europe. You may not know that Israel is one of the world's major exporters of tulips and other fresh-cut flowers. 
It's on the forefront of medical research. When we go to Israel, people get nervous. What if something happens? What if I get sick? Good night. You're in a country filled with Jewish doctors. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Nothing is primitive about Israeli medicine. They're on the forefront of cancer research and heart research and all the rest. I'm only telling you this because I want you to explain to me how this all came about in a mosquito-infested swampland since 1948. I, I just want you to explain it to me. Uh, Israel's diamond industry is world-class. It has world-class musicians and composers and orchestra. It has eight world-class universities. It has a few dozen other colleges. It has about a dozen foreign university extensions. And yet, in land area, there's nothing to it. Take a look at this. Uh, what you're seeing here is uh, an actual satellite image uh, of the Middle East today. Can you find Israel in it? Folks, uh, <laughs> This is drawn to scale. You see how small Israel is? In most maps, Israel is so small, you, the cartographer, the map maker, can't even print Israel on the space that is Israel. It's usually out there in the Mediterranean, and there's an arrow pointing to it. It's dinky. There's nothing to it. It is one half the size of San Bernardino County in California. You can take two Israels and put it in the state of Massachusetts. You can fit nine Israels into Ohio. You can fit 15 Israels in California. And by the way, I think we should. <laughs> 15 Israels. There's nothing to it. Here's another way, um, maybe, to help you appreciate the smallness of Israel. Uh, what you're looking at is Israel in the Arab world. Israel, you can't hardly see it over there, but there it is, is surrounded by uh, 23 Arab nations or territories. There are about 7 million citizens of Israel as of today. Uh, but you may not know that one, uh, approximately 1.5 one million Israeli citizens are Arabs, which means there are five and a half million Jewish Israeli citizens in the Jewish homeland. Five and a half mil today. By contrast, the combined population of Israel's Arab neighbors exceeds 350 million. 350 million. Five and a half million. It's not even close. The land area, the population, is absolutely nothing in comparison to the Arab world. And yet, particularly since May 1948, the Arab world has developed an almost insatiable appetite, an unbridled interest in Jerusalem, in particular, the capital of that dinky country. Why? Well, it's because Jerusalem is the center and the heart of things. Uh, King David established Jerusalem as the capital of the 
combined united kingdom of Israel and Judah 3,000 years ago. And for 3,000 years, it has remained the capital of Israel. It has always been the center and the heart of Jewish people. It has never been the capital, never, even while Israel was out of the land. Jerusalem has never been the capital of any Arab country. In fact, while Jerusalem was under the control of the Jordanians prior to 1948, absolutely no attempts were made by Jordan or any other Arab people group to make Jerusalem their capital. In fact, no Arab leader even visited it. There seemed to be, at least until 1948, no interest in it. Now there is. But I want to tell you, God has never ceased to be intensely interested in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is mentioned over 700 times in the Bible, and yet not once in the Quran, the holy book of Islam. Not once in the Quran, but the God of the Bible has his eye on Jerusalem. Why such interest in it now, therefore? Well, I'll tell you why. Satan read the Bible, and he found out the place where Jesus, whom he, Satan, hates, will return and reign from. He hates the fact that Jesus is coming again and will reign from Jerusalem, from a reconstructed temple, to which the nations of the world will go up to worship Almighty God. Satan, who said, I would be like God, wants this worship for himself, and that's what's behind the intense hatred and obsessive interest in wresting Jerusalem away from Jewish hands as the capital of the Jewish Messiah. It's an attempt to keep Jesus out. Let's make it Islamic, a false religion of Satan. It is not a religion of peace. I know that's politically correct, but you have to come to that conclusion in total disregard of what the Quran teaches. It teaches that you are an infidel, and that if you don't bow to Allah, you are to be destroyed. That is not a religion of peace. So Islam is Satan's vehicle by which Jerusalem is to be taken out of the hands of the Jewish people, the attempt being to keep Jesus out. And look at what a good start Satan is off to. When you see panoramic pictures of Israel, Jerusalem today, you know what you see? The Dome of the Rock, this magnificent bit of architecture, golden domed. You see it looming high above the rest of Jerusalem. It's on every postcard and poster. You can see it in the picture uh, in front of you. The Dome of the Rock. It is thought to be the third holiest site in Islam after Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. Perhaps you're seeing 
uh, some of this on the news today during the Hajj, which is an Islamic holiday, a holy day. Three million Muslim people uh, are there now observing the Hajj, one of which is the president of Iran and other Muslim leaders. Anyway, it's thought to be the place where Mohammed was resurrected on a horse. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It houses a, a big piece of natural bedrock from which Islamic people say Abraham offered not Isaac, but Ishmael in sacrifice. They say that the Jews have distorted the Bible and we inserted Isaac in place of Ishmael, but the Quran teaches it was Ishmael through whom the covenant and promise was passed. So this is an extremely holy site in Islam. And yet the Bible says a temple will once again stand on this very site and that in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus, a 1,000-year earthly reign, it'll be from the temple on this site from which the Lord Jesus will rule and reign the world. But how's he going to pull that off? I don't think the Muslim people are going to volunteer to give that thing up. Well, I don't know how, but I know he has things like earthquakes at his disposal. <clears throat> and that's all it would take. And the dimensions of the millennial temple are much larger even than this um, raised platform can presently accommodate. So there's going to have to be some change in topography, and I think an earthquake could do it. That would be okay by me. So Jesus, the Bible tells us, will return to the Mount of Olives. You can stand on it today. I'm not making this stuff up. And the Bible says it will split half going north, half south, and the Lord Jesus will pass through from the Mount of Olives, and he will re-enter the city of Jerusalem. Oh, not like on Palm Sunday, humble and mounted on a donkey. Oh, no, this time he comes not as Lamb of God, but as Lion of Judah. And the Bible tells us he will come through... The Bible tells us he will come through the eastern or golden gates of Jerusalem. But there's a bit of a problem. The Muslims have bricked it up. And the M Muslims have put a cemetery. It's a Muslim cemetery right outside the golden gate. The stated purpose is to keep Jesus from coming through. I'm not making this up. It has nothing to do with geography and it has nothing to do with politics. Don't you see? It's a cosmic spiritual battle between Satan, who would be worshipped as God, and the Savior, who alone is God. Don't you see what's going on here? He read the Bible. Satan did. And so he's trying to come up with a way to keep Jesus out. Well, i got to tell you something. It's just not going to work. <clears throat> So the chosen people needed a chosen land. And so the God of Israel strategically chose the land of Israel 
uh, for the chosen people, Israel. And so again, I refer you, I'll read it quickly, to Ezekiel 5.5. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with lands around her. And that is literally true. God set the chosen people in this chosen land, which is the center of the nations. Israel, even today, is kind of like a land bridge between continents. It connects the three continents of Europe and Africa and Asia. And so he put the Jewish people in it because they were supposed to shine forth the glory of their God. They were supposed to communicate to every other people group on earth the goodness and the mercy of God, his holiness and yet his willingness to pardon sin, the fact that all our righteous deeds are filthy rags and that to be in right standing with Almighty God is a function of his provision of the ultimate Lamb of God. God, the unblemished Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, Christ for the nations. And what a place to utter forth that message except from the center of the earth. And my people have failed miserably. But not God's plan. Just Israel implementing it. And so God raised up the ultimate Israelite, the Lord Jesus. And I tell you... <laughs> he will accomplish victory in spite of Israel. And so God chose this land in particular, and Satan sees it, and Satan knows it, and that's why you have conflict in the Middle East. So as we draw to a close, can you look at this last slide for tonight? We'll do more subsequent weeks. Um, it's an interesting map and you can see, as indicated, the boundaries of present-day Israel. And notice that they're smaller than the boundaries of the biblical kingdom of Israel. So, so the borders of the land, as given in the Bible, extend much further than the actual borders of the land for the modern state of Israel today. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, there is an amplification of the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, in which we read, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Well, we know a lot about it now because it's in Iraq. So the biblical confines of the land include major parts of Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. And yet Israel has never in its history uh, possessed the full extent of the land given unconditionally to her by God, as clearly stated in Genesis 15, 18. Why? It goes back to what I was telling you about last week. Though the title deed to the land under the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, the unobstructed enjoyment of the full extent of the land, according to the Mosaic covenant, 
is very much a function of obedience. And because Israel has disobeyed down to this very day, because Israel has turned her back on her own Messiah, down to this very day, Israel has not enjoyed unchallenged, unobstructed enjoyment of the full extent of the land. I offered that to you as a parallel of our own spiritual situation, mentioning to you the new covenant carries with it no condition either, only that you would receive the inexpressible gift of redemption through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. But your experience of the full extent of new covenant blessing and mine is very much a function of our obedience or disobedience. Can you see the parallel? Now, I want to tell you something in closing that I find very exciting. The fact that Israel has never possessed the full extent of the boundaries of the land given to her by God in Genesis 15 and reaffirmed in many other places in the scriptures, the fact that she has not yet possessed the full extent of the land tells me she will. Why? Because God keeps his word. Now, look, look, look. This ought to lay to rest any question in your mind. Has God forsaken his people? If he did, he failed. He's a weakling. He's a liar. He made a covenant. I just read it to you in Genesis 15, 18. Don't tell me that's your interpretation. You come up with another one. I just read it to you in Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He didn't make it with Allah. He didn't make it with Muhammad. He made it with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have, I have given this land. Don't spiritualize it. It's a physical land allotment. To prove it, here's the boundaries. From the river of Egypt, far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's what God said. I'm not amplifying a thing. I just read it to you. Now, if God said it and can't do it, then your confidence in him is misplaced. Don't you see what Satan is up to? If he can drive Israel into the sea, if he can get rid of the Jews, you have no reason to believe God is going to fulfill the promises of the new covenant to you. Your eternity, your promised land in heaven may never come because you ain't so hot either. You see what Satan is up to. It has nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with the God who entered into covenant with Israel so that we could know how gracious and trustworthy he is in spite of Israel and thus be eternally secure through the merits of the Lord Jesus as given under the new covenant. So the fact that this has not yet been fulfilled tells me, ah, God has not replaced Israel. There is a future for Israel because it can only be in the future when Israel will come into full possession of the land uh, blessing given to her under the Abrahamic covenant. And this will happen. Why? One reason, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he has anything to repent of. Has he said and will he not do it? And has he spoken and will he not fulfill it?
To me, that settles the whole issue. So, my dear friends, don't be tempted to give in to this terrible, heretical thought that because of the uncircumcised heart of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has to throw up his hands. He's at a loss. He can't bring them through and into covenant blessings because he's a weakling. He's limited. And Israel's disobedience is a more powerful force than God's grace. The new covenant tells us where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That's the only reason why you and I are secure. Don't you see what's at stake here? It's the character of Almighty God. If he couldn't pull off his promises to Israel, what assurances do you have he'll pull off his promises to you? That's what Satan is up to. He wants us to believe God is Santa Claus, mythological. He's the Easter bunny. He's a figment of your imagination. Well, I'm working on it, Zeke. Thank you. No, but I'm, I'm getting an ulcer or, or giving one more like, don't you see what's at stake? Um, I, I'm, I'm impassioned about this because it isn't political. It has nothing to do with that. And that's why political solutions, Annapolis, Land for Peace, United Nations, Oy vey. <laughs> Give me a break. A spiritual affliction requires a spiritual remedy. Could I encourage you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? That doesn't mean when people sign peace accords. Listen, not next week, not the week after, because we're off. We don't get together the next two Wednesday nights. But on the 9th of January, we get back together, if you, if you can handle it. We get back together January. And I want to show you more stuff. I, I, I want to show you maps, and I want to show you peace treaties, and I want to talk to you about um, our presidents and uh, Israeli leaders and prime ministers and presidents of Arab lands and peace accords and all the rest. And it's a if the Jewish prophet of old is alive again, saying, and they cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. There can't be peace, shalom, in Jerusalem, the city of peace, until the prince of peace, his name is Jesus, is invited in. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, thank you for peace, which we have on an individual basis with you because of your merits, because you have fulfilled the law, because you came, because you were enfleshed, because you went through the birth process, because you grew uh, because you were crucified, because you were laid in a tomb, because you rose up, defeating the last enemy death, because you ascended, because you're seated making intercession for us, because you are going to return, because everyone will bow before you one way or the other. It's all about you. 
oh God, it isn't about us and it isn't about Israel and it isn't about the Arab nations. It's about us making a mess of things. And we have broken it so much we can't fix it. We can't see our way out. And oh God, therefore we look to you and we cry out to you, peacemaker. Let there be peace in Israel. Let there be peace in the Middle East through the gospel of peace, not politicians, the gospel of peace going forth through every country in the Middle East, the Jewish homeland and the Arab world as well. For you invite all to come to you uh, to receive grace and mercy, Jew and Gentile and Arab and black and white and everyone. You are the great equalizer, Lord Jesus. Make peace in our hearts and in the Middle East through the cross, the bridge upon which you, the Prince of Glory, died and then rose up from the dead. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return in triumph and victory, receiving all the glory which is your due. And until then, Give us an appetite to play a role in shining forth the gospel of peace to all people groups on earth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.